Good morning, everyone. <laughs> well, before I begin this morning's message, I feel that I need to bring you a follow-up from the last time uh, I spoke with you, a bit of a postscript, I think, to, to the message that we had a fortnight ago. So you might remember um, a fortnight ago I spoke to you from Isaiah chapter 5, uh, the Song of the Vineyard. And we looked at God's question there, uh, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I had done for it? And I compared it to our CICAD, which we've got out the back. And our CICAD, which was much loved and much fussed over and uh, unfortunately um, didn't really enjoy life and... uh, Eventually all the leaves were removed and all we had left was a little shriveling up stump out there. And eventually we planted another plant, an agave, over the top of it because the shriveled up stump was quite ugly, really. Um, So another plant was put there to hide it because we didn't get round to digging the whole stump out and there were one or two people that didn't want to dig the whole stump out. And after last week's message, or fortnight ago's message, Um, You know, we got all kinds of feedback. Some people said, oh, you killed it with kindness, you know. Um, Other people said, oh, you should dig it out. It's so ugly. The stump looks so ugly. Once they went out there and had a look, one person went out and prayed over that stump. And today, I'm happy to report, it's alive. (laughs) I think God has... Not only very good sense of timing, but also a very great sense of humour. On Friday afternoon, I had just finished preparing my prayer message for the bulletin. And the message there was about if my people will humble themselves and pray, call on me and pray. And it's about praying for our nation, praying for revival in our nation. And after I'd finished that, I knew it was going to be a hot weekend, so I thought I'd better go out and water the plants and I went out there with the sprinkler head in my hand and my eyes kind of did a double take and I stopped and I looked at this thing and the sprinkler head just dropped and then I screamed and there was no one to tell the news to. Pastor Glenn had just driven out the driveway and I wanted to chase him up, you know, Thompson's Road but I wouldn't have caught him. So I had to run back inside and get my phone and so I started sending text messages to people who love that plant and they just, it was all capitals, it's alive, with lots of exclamation marks. Um, so I don't care what anybody else says, there will not be a day that I walk past that plant and I'm not reminded that if my people will humble themselves and pray, God can do a mighty revival in our community and in this place. And I think he's given us a a great example from nature. So if you can't see the the image, if you're at home or perhaps it's small out in the the hallway there where you're looking at it or in the the foyer, um, go outside afterwards and have a look. Um, It even looks better than that because it's had two more days of growth. Um, So enjoy it. And hopefully when you too walk past it, you will be reminded to pray for revival in our community. Well, we must move back to this morning's message. And it's another one from 
the world of plants. Our text this morning comes from the book of Romans. Paul's letter to the church in Rome has been described in many ways. It's been described as the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. It's been described as a masterpiece. It has been described as the clearest and most systematic presentation of Christian doctrine in all of the scriptures. But it's not the easiest book in the Bible to read. At times you have to read and reread this book to try and grasp what is being communicated. It's heavy on theology and doctrine and it takes time to grasp the concepts. But for those who are willing to put in that time, the rewards are very great. And at intervals within the text, Paul places some examples from everyday life. He uses an example from marriage. He talks about the human body being like the church. He talks about dough and talks about plants. And I'm glad he does because Christian doctrine and theology can be tough to wade through, but all of us, I think, can understand dough and plants and marriage and the human body. And that, of course, is why he's placed them there um, to help us understand what he's talking about. And in our passage today, it is plants that we're focusing on, in particular, grafted plants. So before we go any further, we need to be sure that everybody understands what grafted plants are, because if you don't, the passage makes zero sense to you. So whether you're aware of it or not, all of you will have had experience with grafted plants. You will have at least seen them because every plant in this picture I've got up here of, of cacti, all of them are grafted. The upper part, we usually call the scion, although that sort of relates to fruit trees, but the upper part is the scion or the graft, and it goes on to the lower or the green part, which we call the root stock. Now, I'm not a huge fan of these myself. I find them a bit Frankensteinian, um, but if you want a living example of just what God has done for you, you might want to go out and buy one of these and put it on your desk somewhere. Now, you well, might well ask, why do people do this to plants? Why would anyone want to do this? And there is a variety of answers to that question. The yellows and the reds and the dark reds that you see in that picture up there have only survived because they've been grafted. So these are all mutants which have no ability to survive on their own because they contain no chlorophyll, which is that green pigment that helps plants produce food from the sun and to feed themselves. So these, these yellows and reds and dark reds, they can't do that. They can't photosynthesize, so therefore they can't feed themselves. And a plant that can't feed itself only has two options in life, either die or parasitize something else that can feed you. Now, these mutants have no ability on their own to parasitize anything else. Some other plants can. They've adapted to be able to do that. These don't. So in nature, these would have died out by now. Had it not been for humans, because sometimes in the plant world, it is just sufficient to be appealing to humans 
and let them do all the hard work for you. That's what our grain plants do. That is how grain plants have come to dominate the entire earth because they're appealing to humans for food. These particular plants just have to look nice or freakish and we humans will do whatever they need to make them survive. And so what we do is we take an unwitting plant to be the parasite that, this, that these little plants feed off. And the plant that we take to do that is a dragon fruit plant. Now the dragon fruit plant is a very tough, very hardy, very fast growing cactus. And we humans take peace from that poor plant and we lop it, the top off it and we stick our little red moon cactus on top and we force it to feed the little red moon cactus. So all of those nutrients that should have been growing into making a huge plant like that and some huge dragon fruits are now feeding our little red moon cactus. So that's one reason why you might want to graft a cactus. But there are many others. Another reason might be to improve the growth of the graft. So sometimes cacti are very slow growing. And if you want to propagate them, it takes a long time for them to produce those little pups, the little balls that you see on the side there that you can cut off and grow and sell separately. But if you put them on a very fast growing food source that feeds them rapidly, they'll grow rapidly and produce more pups more rapidly. Some varieties are just plain difficult to grow outside of their natural habitat. But if you put them on something that's better adapted to the habitat, they will be able to survive and they'll even thrive. But sometimes it's not even nutrients that we want to transfer to the, the plant. Sometimes grafting is done because the rootstock has other properties that it can provide to the plant. Um, specifically disease control or disease resistance properties. So cacti are often susceptible to rots, but the dragon fruit not so much. So if you put one of these little cacti on top of a dragon fruit, you will protect it from death through root rotting. So cacti, probably all of you are familiar with. You will have seen them at one time or another, even if you're not a huge fan of them. Roses, often grafted as well. And I know many of you are into roses, but roses are a little bit like people. And I don't mean that they're just prickly. <laughs> it's very hard in roses to get the complete package. Often the really beautiful ones they're not very tough or adapted to surviving on their own. They need a lot of pampering. And so you take a really beautiful one and you graft it onto a, a rootstock that probably produces quite an ugly flower, but it's tough and really hardy against disease and it's really well able to survive on its own. And you get the complete package, a tough, hardy plant with a beautiful flower. Similar story when you're breeding for fruit. Tough, hardy, vigorous rootstocks generally produce few fruits or fruits that no one wants to eat because they're all dried up and have a really thick rind and they're just generally not very nice. So you put, you use those rootstocks 
to put your latest variety of delicious fruit that everybody wants to eat and you'll find them growing well. And the same thing with vegetable seedlings. Now, we have vegetable seedlings, fairly low value product, so we don't do this for crops that just produce one vegetable. So you're not going to graft a broccoli plant because you get one head off that plant and it grows quickly. Same with lettuce. No one grafts lettuce. But for the multi-pick crops, so like tomatoes, where you get loads and loads of tomatoes over the whole season, or things that are higher value, like melons and things, where you get multiple picks and they're higher value, then it can be worthwhile doing, um, particularly for disease resistance. And it is done. Um, and farmers use these types of plants. And you can see the sort of effect that you can get here in this picture in terms of disease control. So I don't think I need to tell anyone which plants in this particular picture have been grafted onto a disease-resistant rootstock. Very obvious. So now that we're all familiar and on the same page and know exactly what we mean by grafting today, we need to ensure that the people way back to whom Romans was written actually had the same understanding because if they didn't, then we're going to have an interpretation problem here. And that applies for anything you read in the Bible, not just information about plants. Agriculture has changed a lot in the last 2,000 years. Who's to say that what they understood back then is actually what we understand and practice today. So is there any evidence outside of the Bible that suggests that, yes, these people actually did understand grafting in the same way as what we do today? And the answer to that is yes. The earliest records that we have come from the ancient Greeks. Surprise, surprise. Um, and they come from a guy named Theophilus. I think Bill would do a better job of pronouncing his name than what I do, but his name's up there. You can see it for yourself. And he wrote around 300 years BC. And he was a pupil of Aristotle, and he has become known as the father of horticulture because of his writings. And in 300 BC, he wrote his treatise on propagation. And in it there, he describes a process of propagation that is exactly like grafting as we know it today. He says the twig uses the stock as a cutting uses the earth. So bud grafting too is a kind of planting and not a mere juxtaposition. And when he talks about what the, the top part of the plant gains from that relationship, he says the generative fluid. The bud possesses this when it is fitted onto the stock and getting its food from the latter produces its own type of sprout. So 300 years BC, they were grafting plants and we're still doing it exactly the same way today. Ancient Rome were also, was also part of, of their agricultural practices. The earliest records from the ancient Roman Empire come from poetry from around 29 BC. Now, this particular poem was not just a mere little rhyming ditty. Virgil's poem consisted of 2,188 verses across four books of poetry. And the entire thing in four volumes was all about agriculture. And it was written for the um, Aristoc 
aristocracy amongst the farmers of the time. And in it, we find two different methods of grafting described. The language in this one is a little bit harder to read, but it says, nor is the method of inserting eyes and grafting one, for where the buds push forth amidst the bark and burst the membranes thin, even on the knot a narrow rift is made, wherein from some strange tree, which means part of the tree that's not of the rootstock, a germ they pen, and to the moist rind bid it cleave and grow. Or otherwise, in knotless trunks, is hewn a breach and deep into the solid grain a path with wedges cloven, then fruitful slips are set herein, and no long time, behold, to heaven upshot with teeming boughs, the strange tree's leaves admire the fruitage not its own. They understood grafting exactly the same way as we do. So we don't have to put in much effort to appreciate what Paul is talking about in his letter here to the Romans. So let's see what he has to say. If you would turn to Romans chapter 11, we're going to read from verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap, the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree? <coughs> Have any of you actually had a go at grafting a plant? Anyone? Three people, four people have had a go. It's not as easy as it looks. Back years ago, I used to lead a team of researchers and we worked on soilborne diseases. And within each state or territory, we had people who were part of that team who were charged with doing one aspect of the work, depending on what the priority was for their particular state. And our grafting expert was based in the Northern Territory. And every year, or every couple of years, there would be field days, agricultural field days, that were organised for the farmers in the different states. And we would be part of those field days. These were huge events, huge industry events, and 
all of the seed companies be preparing months and months and months in advance to get all of their latest varieties out in the field and looking 100% by the date of that field day when the farmers would walk through their field and see what the latest varieties were that they could um, take for their farm. All of the agricultural machinery people would come with their latest harvesters and whatever equipment they had, tractors and all sorts of things. The irrigation people would be there, the chemical resellers would be there. It was a huge industry event and we would always be part of it, the, the, um, the researchers, and we would have a big marquee allocated to set up our displays. And we'd have different displays with all hands-on activities for people to try. And one of the things on this particular day that we were doing was a grafting demonstration. And so our expert from the Northern Territory was to come down and teach this method and we'd have demonstrations there and plants there that people could try for themselves. Trouble was his flight got cancelled. And so I was left to run the grafting demonstration. I had never grafted a plant in my life. So I had a quick uh, crash course over the phone. I had all plants there because I'd grown them up for him. Obviously, he couldn't bring them into state. So I, I had all the materials there. I just didn't really have the know-how. So he gave me a, a crash course. And it all sounds very simple. You cut a, a V-shaped notch in the rootstock and you uh, cut a, you slice the, the scion that's to go in and you fit them together and make sure they're held tightly together. It all looks very easy when you're dealing with material like that that is tough and woody. I was dealing with fiddly little vegetable seedlings like this and I can tell you it was not so easy. Anyway, I persisted and managed to finally get two that looked half reasonable and so we put them on display and the farmers and the others came through and went, yeah. And after a while, someone said to me, those ones don't look so great. And I looked at my demonstration plants and they were starting to, just at the top, just bend over just a little bit. And so I kept my eye on them. And within an hour, they were really starting to bend over and they had to be moved from the display. Suffice to say, for the rest of the day, I had two people whose job it was to just keep feeding plants and we just kept grafting and regrafting and we'd stick them there for a couple of days and a couple of hours, we'd miss them and we were everything we could to keep them alive. But we just had a conveyor belt of these plants coming through because the original ones weren't lasting the day and it wasn't even summer, it was the middle of winter when we were doing this. So from my limited experience of grafting, I'm going to offer you up some insights today uh, that might help us explore this passage. First and foremost of greatest importance is the rootstock. Grafting is done primarily because the rootstock can supply something to the upper part of the plant that it cannot supply for itself. It might be the source of nourishment, it might be vigour, it might be disease resistance, or it could simply be survival. The rootstock must supply something to the plant. Otherwise, grafting is completely pointless. Paul himself says in verse 17, you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. And then in verse 18, 
You do not support the root. The root supports you. So what is this root that we are grafted into and what special properties does it confer to the plant? And a clue here comes from the verse that is immediately before our passage for today. It says, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul here makes an analogy with the setting aside of the first part of the dough um, as a reference to what's been harvested to make the dough, that the whole lot is considered holy because one portion was set aside. So holiness includes this idea of being set aside, set apart. The root of this tree is a covenant that God had with Abraham and that set him apart. The nation of Israel, the Jewish people, the branches of this tree were set apart and made holy because of their connection to God through the covenant that he had with their forefathers, with Abraham, and all of the subsequent covenants, all of which were given to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel. From the time of that covenant with Abraham to the time really of Paul, God dealt with only a few exceptions, only with Gentiles through Israel. That was his primary way of dealing with the Gentiles, was only through Israel because they had access to this root. They were the ones set aside chosen and holy. The tree then <coughs> represents God's blessing. With the branches, which are Israel, they acquire that blessing through the covenant with Abraham. So for the rest of us, having access to this root is important because it's how we share in God's blessing. If we're going to and we're going to pause here for a moment and we're going to think about this tree because if we misunderstand what this tree represents, we can get ourselves in all sorts of knots trying to figure out how this passage fits with the rest of what's said in Romans and the rest of what's said in the, the New Testament. The tree is a place of blessing. It is not a place of salvation. Israel enjoyed a privileged position of blessing because they're God's covenant people, holy and set apart. Yet because they had rejected Christ, who is the fulfilment of the law and the confirmation of all of those promises, all of those promises that were made to the patriarchs, they have become disconnected from that covenant for now and from that place of privilege and blessing associated with it. They are branches that are disconnected for a time from the tree of blessing. And the Gentiles have been grafted in. We are living in those days, the days of the Gentiles when God's blessing is upon the Gentiles collectively. And we notice that this whole passage is collective, not individual. 
the Jews collectively and the Gentiles collectively. There's nothing in this passage or in the context of this passage that suggests that we're talking about individuals. In the context, the whole passage is addressed to the Gentiles collectively. You see that in verse 13. The wild olive shoot that was grafted in is the Gentiles collectively. You do not support the root, but the root supports you, refers to that wild olive shoot. The you is the wild olive shoot, which is the Gentiles. Branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. The I refers to the wild olive shoot that was grafted in. It's the Gentiles collectively. It's not any individual person. And people get themselves in a real mess with this passage because they think, well, I'm a Christian, but isn't this passage telling me that maybe I'm not and maybe I don't know and I won't know till I die? It makes them think, well, maybe I need to work harder at my salvation because that's not what Paul's saying here. That sort of understanding, in fact, runs against everything that Paul has said and already taught about righteousness by faith, which he speaks about in chapters 3 and 4. But it also runs against most of the rest of the New Testament, John 3.16. Whoever believes in me shall not perish but have eternal life. Or the words of Jesus, whoever drinks of this water I give them will never be thirsty again. Indeed, the water I give them will spring up to eternal life. If you're a believer, your eternal destiny is assured and this passage doesn't teach otherwise because the tree is a tree of blessing, not salvation, and the passage is speaking collectively. It's not speaking to an individual. During the time when Israel occupied that place of blessing through the covenant that God had with them, the only way the Gentiles could be blessed was by association with Israel. The place of blessing was for Jews, but it wasn't exclusively there. Some Gentiles were blessed through their association with Israel. The old covenant required strict adherence to the Mosaic law. Did all of Israel strictly obey? No, they did not. The Bible is full of examples where many of them ran after other gods and they engaged in all sorts of practices. But still, collectively, the place of blessing was for the nation of Israel. And most of those blessed during that time were the Jewish people. Now, for the sake of the Gentiles, natural branches, the nation of Israel, have been broken off and the Gentiles collectively have been grafted in to occupy that place of blessing. Does that mean that all Gentiles are saved? No, of course not. Most are not saved. Does it mean that all Jews are excluded? No, it doesn't. Because Jews and Gentiles are blessed during this time through the forgiveness of sin and the profession of faith in Christ who is the mediator of that new covenant. Still, collectively at this time, the place of blessing is with the Gentiles. Most, but not all of those blessed during this time will be Gentiles, and the means of that blessing is by faith. 
So faith we could think of like the graft, which joins the upper part of the plant to the rootstock, allowing it to partake of what that rootstock has to provide to it. Faith is how we access those blessings from the covenant and it is how the wild olive branch comes to belong to the cultivated olive tree and be considered true descendants of Abraham. So faith then is something that we must carefully nurture. We must attend to that union between the rootstock and the upper part of the plant. And that graft, which is faith, must be strong. And in a horticultural sense, we do this by keeping the graft free of contaminants. We hold it firmly in place with clips or grafting tape. And we supply a humid environment to avoid drying out where possible because once that union dries out, it's going to fall apart. The graft must be protected. Vegetable seedlings, you can see there in the image on the right, um, have deliberately been grafted really high on the stem so that there's not going to be any contamination from soil below. And they're held together with a grafting clip to keep the union bound together. The grafts on the tree, tree trunk on the other side have been coated in grafting wax, which keeps that union from contamination from bacteria and fungi. And likewise here, there's a grafting clip used there on a tomato plant to keep the union strong. And elsewhere we use tape um, to join them and also to protect um, the point of union. And my point here is that faith is something that we need to protect. No one makes a successful graft by cutting a V-shaped notch, ramming the other plant in and walking away. That is doomed to failure. The two pieces would rapidly dry up, there'd be a callus would form over them and they'd fall apart. The union would be destroyed. In commercial grafting facilities, misting beds or tents are set up to provide a humid environment and the plants are constantly supplied with what they need to nurture that union and give it every chance to take hold and grow strong. And that's what we need to do with our own faith and with the faith of our children and others that we come in contact with. We need to protect ourselves and them from contaminants that might come in to rot the union. And we need to strive to create that spiritual hothouse, surround ourselves, give ourselves the time to read and study the scriptures, to pray, to read other Christian literature, to seek out mentors in the faith, to involve ourselves actively in the life of the church, to serve, to do whatever we can to allow that union to grow strong. The age of the church is the time of the Gentiles and it will eventually come to an end. If we read on to the next verse, verse 25, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved. Now this is something that is hard for us to get our heads around. Paul calls it a mystery. And he puts it very succinctly in just one verse. Way back when Israel 
was about to enter the promised land, Moses also described this mystery, but he gives us a beautiful picture of what that time will be like for Israel. And I'm not going to read all of it now. You can find it in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 10. It is a time when Israel, scattered amongst all the nations, returned to the Lord with circumcised hearts to love him with all their heart and soul. It is a time when the Lord again will delight in them as he delighted in their fathers. What a time that will be. Romans chapter 11, verse 12, which is just a few verses before our passage today, says it like this. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? If their loss brings riches, imagine the riches that their fullness will bring. What a great time of blessing that will be for the people of God. We who were lost, we wild olive branch, we've been grafted in. And that was always part of the Father's great plan. Lost but brought in as true descendants of Abraham, children of God, that is his great love for us. We're going to stand now and if you would join me as we praise God in song and reflect on just what it is that God has done for us. The song is, Who You Say I Am. <laughs> 